Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning, friends. So last week I changed my sermon because I felt like God was doing something in our community and I wanted to talk about uh, spiritual warfare and how we prepare for battle, knowing that not everything is a spiritual attack, but recognizing that when we are part of a body, that when a few of us experience spiritual warfare, we all need to engage in walking with each other in a different way. Um, But I realized in the schedule of teaching, I am not able to complete the talk. So we wanted to throw this on the podcast just to give you guys Uh, the other principle for emotionally healthy spirituality. So as part of our series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, we're looking at these principles from the book by Pete Scazzaro, and we're trying to recognize that you can't be spiritually mature without being emotionally healthy. So over the last six weeks or so, we've looked at four principles. Principle number one, look beneath the surface. Principle two, break the power of the past. Principle three, live in brokenness and vulnerability. And principle four, receive the gift of limits. Today, we're going to talk about another principle. But before that, I want to read some stories in Scripture and help us uh, frame this particular principle and how it impacts our lives. So in Acts chapter 19, verse 13, there's this story and it goes like this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, say that seven times fast, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, all seven of them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So this is one of those stories that is so weird and peculiar that I often skip over it. In fact, if you recall a couple of weeks ago, I preached on Acts 19 and we talked about what it looks like to see a riot in Ephesus, what caused the riot? At the beginning of the book, we see that um, Paul comes into Ephesus and finds 12 disciples and recognizes that they believed in the message of John the Baptist. But then Paul preaches about Jesus, the Messiah, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see that there were, I've always preached, there were three things that brought a riot uh, to Ephesus. But actually, I discovered there's four. Um, So I'm going to have to change the way I preach this. But number one is that the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And we see that the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and things begin to happen. The second thing that happens is Paul goes into town, preaches the kingdom of God, rents this place called the Hall of Tyrannus where he preaches and proclaims the word of the Lord and it spreads wildly. The message of Jesus spreads throughout the province of Asia. And then it says that Paul did extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is the epicenter for um, this uh, Artemis worship. 
And so it's a place of power and confrontation. And Paul sees extraordinary miracles, healings and demon possessions. Um, and people are delivered. And the next story after that is this story. So we know that the, the first thing is that the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. The second is the church had a, a, a faithful uh, missional presence to its context. And the third now is the, the church has um, a, is slowing down for loving union, which I'll get to in a second. But I want, this is the story. What happens is, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Those seven sons of Sceva, they're trying to do a good thing. They're wanting to participate in the advancing of the kingdom. However, the chances are good, as good as their motives are, maybe mixed at best, in an effort to capture some of the prestige bestowed to releasing God's power over evil spirits, they took a spiritual shortcut. That's what's going on here. The seven sons of Sceva are taking a spiritual shortcut. They skipped over making a long-term investment in a life of built on a life that's built on ongoing relationship with God. You see, the ongoing relationship with God is the source of Paul's miraculous miracles. His extraordinary miracles. They rushed into it. They rushed into spiritual realities they did not understand and they were ill-equipped to deal with the um, confrontation they were embarking on. And as a result, they barely escaped with their lives. And this is what happens. Whenever we find ourselves wanting the ministry impact of Jesus, while simultaneously resisting spending time with Jesus, we are positioning ourselves for a beating, (laughs) to say the least. We're going to run out bleeding. You see, the seven sons of Sceva tried to speak and act on truths that were not rooted in their lives. Let me say that again. The seven sons of Sceva tried to speak and act on truths that were not rooted in their life. They did not have sufficient strength in their life with God to support the level of spiritual warfare in which they were engaged. The integrity gaps in their walk with God expose them to danger and harm. I've never been beat up before by evil spirits, thank God. (laughs) Seriously, could you imagine? But every time we do what the sons of Sceva did, we buy into an illusion. We present ourselves as something or someone that we're not. We don't take the time to give Jesus access to our motivations and fears then our souls shrivel and warp as we stay further and further away from what is true. We become hypocrites. We put on masks and we no longer live out of what is true. Uh, There's a similar story, or it's not necessarily similar, but it's interesting. But if you have a Bible, go to Matthew 7, verse 21. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has this very interesting statement. He says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to my Father who is in heaven, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there's this passage where Jesus confronts the self-deception of those who do wonderful things in his name. They prophesy, they drive out demons, they perform miracles, which is, are all very impressive and successful in, in ministry terms. But what could be wrong with doing those things and finding success in ministry? Well, by all appearances, their efforts have the marks of a vibrant, growing ministry. I think this is the problem with the church today. There's something wrong. Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, wait a minute. How can that be? He knew us in our mother's womb. Before we were formed, he he knew the number of hairs on our head. He knows who we are. But he says to us, I never knew you. And in any event, um, it would be more appropriate for us to say, Jesus, we never knew you. But that's not what's happening. Jesus is saying to us that he didn't know us. And there's a strong biblical word here. It's a verb for a very intimate, personal, knowing relationship. And it's connected to Genesis where Adam and Eve are naked and without shame in the garden. There's a sense of oneness and knowing. And um, we may be sincere in our saying, Lord, Lord. And it may appear that we actually have a growing, successful life in ministry or in the things we're doing, quote-unquote, for Jesus. We know, may know a lot about God in our heads, but no, but sorry, none of these things matter if we remain unknown by Christ. What matters is the genuine fruit that comes only out of a deep, surrendered connection with Jesus. We can't have the impact we want without knowing God. And this gets us to our principle, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, I want to talk about this principle. And the principle is, in, in one way to phrase it, is slowing down for loving union. That we can't be emotionally healthy in this life without slowing down for loving union. Union. I'm going to talk about what loving union means, but let me talk about slowing down. There's this quote from Michael Zigarelli. He says this, It may be the case that, one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumption about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. Dallas Willard once said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And Carl Jung said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Pete Scazzaro says this in his Emotionally Healthy Leader book, bearing fruit requires slowing down enough to give Jesus direct access to every aspect of our lives and our leadership. Jesus, I'm sorry, 
Just because God has access to everything that is true about us does not mean God has access to us. Loving union is an act of surrender, giving God complete access. We can't do that in a hurry. We must be humbly accessible with the door of our hearts continually open to Him. Jesus doesn't force that on us. It is something only we can do. This is principle five for emotionally healthy spirituality. Slowing down for loving union. So what is loving union? Loving union is not the same thing as devotions or quiet time. It's part of it. Nor is it the same thing as engaging in a long list of spiritual practices or having emotional intense experiences with God on Sunday. Loving union is not about managing your schedule better or simply not being busy. It is not so much about having a sustainable pace of life and finding quote-unquote balance. As important as such things are, or may be, it is possible to engage in them without necessarily experiencing loving union. You can practice those things and not engage in this idea of loving union. Loving union is allowing God to have access to your life. We allow the Spirit of God to access every area of our soul in loving union. He is given permission to speak into our hearts, our emotions, our mind, our bodies, our spirit, our relationships. He has given permission to speak to us about how we live in every area of our life. He has given freedom to to come into our decision-making, into our conflicts, into our secrets, our hobbies, our finances, every part of our life. This loving union cannot be hurried or forced or rushed. It must be slow, gentle, and built into the rhythms of of our life. I often have this picture for people when I'm praying for them. Um, it goes something like this. I, I actually have this creative imagination when I pray for people, when I, when I deal with inner healing stuff. I want you to close your eyes for a moment and see your life as a big, beautiful house with all sorts of rooms, and every room looks different. Some rooms have trophies and memories and pictures on the wall. Other, it's full of tables and furniture and decorations. And I I often do this. I say, hey, imagine God is invited into your home, into this house that's yours, and you give him access to your life. Most of the time, we give him access to our life that we have under control, the areas of our life that are easy. So, for example, we we come to church on Sunday mornings and we give him access to the things that are there, like the living room or the kitchen. But there are certain areas in our lives, closets and rooms that are locked. These rooms are messy. And it's often the rooms of our home, in our life, excuse me, that we carry shame or guilt or brokenness or sin. And these rooms are filled with all sorts of pain. And they're not fully under control. And so I, I often tell people, imagine God coming into those rooms, into those rooms or into that one room and allowing him to have access to that room. And gently walking through those, those, that, that mess and bringing peace and order from the chaos. You see, loving union slows down life to let God into those rooms, those spaces into our, into our life that take time. When we are hurried through life, we are running around, often making everyone else happy, getting through nap times, 
finishing the projects, responding to all the text messages, the emails, the instant messages, the Facebook, the Instagram, the Snapchat, um, the, the phone calls or the voxers or the voice memos that you're leaving. And as, as we run around going through those, those things in a hurry, we actually leave God out of those moments. We leave Him out of that place. And so love and union really is about asking the question. The question we must wrestle with is this. In what ways does my current pace of life enhance or diminish my ability to allow God's will and presence full scope in my life? In what ways is my current pace diminishing life or expanding God's life? Any spiritual practices we may choose then becomes a means to the end, not the end in themselves. But make no mistake, remaining surrendered surrendered while navigating the intense pressures and demands of leadership and life is no small task. So this principle of slowing down for loving union is embracing life at a pace that enables loving union in your everyday ordinary life. It allows God to invade the areas of your life that are ordinary and everyday. You begin to allow God to shape how you interact with your kids, how you interact with your spouse, how you interact with your coworkers. You allow God to come into your mind, into your heart, into your emotions, into your body in real time so that you can feel the emotions that you feel and process them in real time with God. Let me just share my quick experience in this. I am a type A go-getter. I'm a very I'm a busybody. I uh, love lists, I love tasks to get done. I'm very active. I currently in this moment I have a staff team that I oversee at the garden, an elder team that I oversee at the garden. I just passed off a house church that my wife and I oversee, saw at the garden um, with all of those relationships. On top of that, I work with a group of pastors from all over the world that I'm regularly in contact with, Skyping people in Australia and different parts of the world in the UK and South Africa. Um, I have a family. I have two kids, one and four. Um, I have a wife that I go on date nights. I have a house that I clean and help do chores around the house. Um, I'm also training for a marathon. The list goes on and on and on. Um, So there's lots of stuff going on. And my kind of go-to is to run fast. My pace of life is fast and I hurry. And so I'm going to one thing to another. And if I don't regularly check myself, which... By the way, it starts by going to sleep at a reasonable time so that I can wake up in the early morning to get a time of devotion. Um, If I don't get that time of devotion and quiet time with Jesus in, my pace throughout the rest of the day will be hurried and rushed. And so I've learned that you can have a full schedule but live in a slow state of being, an unhurried presence to the world that you're around. Now, this is a challenge, and this is something that I'm working on. I'm not perfect. I would say that I'm not even close to living out the unhurried life that I want, but I have been practicing things to enable this. 
So I want to give you some encouragement on how to practice slowing down for love and union. Um, number one, you need to find your desert, not your dessert, although that's important. Find your desert. You see, throughout scripture and history of the church, the desert has been a place of spiritual preparation, purification, and transformation. Moses spent 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. The prophet Elijah lived in the desert and as a result stood firm as God's prophet in one of the lowest moments of Israel's history. John the Baptist spent much of his adult life in the desert. Out of that place in God, he called a nation to repentance and discern Jesus as the Messiah. Paul spent three years in the Arabian desert receiving God's revelation before going to Jerusalem to begin his apostolic ministry. We see that Jesus over and over again in his ministry, throughout, you see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Jesus would find what was called a solitary place. Um, regularly, Jesus will go to the desert for 40 days to be tempted, come back, choose his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And before he chooses his disciples, he goes back to the solitary place. And it's in the solitary place, the desert place, that Jesus um, continues to wrap his life around as the place where he seeks the Father and enjoys the presence of the Father. And so you see this rhythm of, of going into ministry and working with people, walking with his disciples, preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, speaking to the crowds, and then Jesus going back to the desert place where he is connected to the Father. And I think that's what we need in our life, this rhythm of the desert place. So for you, it might not be early morning, it might be late at night, it might not be late at night, it might be in the middle of the day, but where is your desert? Where do you get alone with God? And start with 10 minutes. Be alone with God. Open up the scriptures. Pray and um, invite the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Second, what I would love for you to start doing is to practice slowing down your overall pace of life. My wife and I, Alex, we, we regularly look at our schedule and say, is this too much? Where can we slow down? And sometimes we just we cancel things because we just need time off to not do anything. And so regularly we're, we're holding intention what God's asked of, us, asked of us in the stage of life that we're in. And we're trying to slow down our overall pace of life, how we drive, the commitments that we make, um, how many people we meet with during the week, um, whether or not we're going to practice um, certain things. You know, it was interesting. I, my son, who's four and a half, Ezra, started soccer and he just started and I guess you can start soccer when kids are like one year old one years old now um, but we started soccer and I had this really interesting interaction with our soccer coach um, the first moment I met the coach he asked if Ezra had been playing soccer yet and I said no this is you know he's four and he's just now beginning and he said oh man well you're, he's on a good team because most of these kids have been playing for a year and a half and that was like, okay, great, good to know. And then he immediately said, hey, you should get him into a clinic uh, so that he can, he can kind of get better at soccer. And I'm like, well, I was kind of shocked by this. And my wife and I were like, what's going on? 
And um, and then another dad who has like a really good four year old playing soccer was like, hey, you should come to this Huntington Beach clinic on Monday nights and and have him start practicing. You can practice every day with your kid and this and that. And I'm like, okay, great. And my response was actually, we're doing soccer so Ezra can have fun. I, I'm not trying to get him as a four year old to be a professional soccer player. And it hit me that that's what our society does. That's what our culture does. We want our kids to be the best. And so many times as parents, we're trying to live through the success of our kids. And for Alex and I, we're just saying, you know, soccer once a week for an hour is enough or twice a week with a game is enough because we have so many other things we're doing. um, And we want this to be a place of joy for Ezra and a place where he gets to just have fun not something that we're trying to build him up to become a pro at or to be the best at. And so even that, our commitment, we're just doing once a week practice and one game a week. But we just realized that our society and culture pushes us to have clinics and coaches and tutors and all these things for our kids. And that's craziness. Um, and if you're out there and you're doing all that, I just want you to be encouraged. You know, um, you should have room for house church you should have room for date nights. You should have room for family meals. And if those things are, those extracurricular things are causing conflict or stress, just challenge the cultural narrative and norm. Um, the third thing is uh, you can establish a rule of life. Now, the rule of life, it's in quotes, is a term uh, that has its linguistic roots from the ancient Greek word that means trellis. So a trellis is a support structure that enables plants, such as a grapevine, to get off the ground and grow upward and become fruitful. It's a beautiful image of what the rule of life is and how it functions. Uh, It's a support structure that helps us to grow and abide in Christ. So this is used throughout the Desert Fathers for what it looked like for them to organize their unique combination of spiritual practices into a structure that enables them or us to pay attention to God in everything we do. So it's a way to structure your life or, um, and allow for organic, intimate growth with the Father. Um, and so what the Benedictine monks did is they organized their life and their monastic life around four areas of 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 four categories that what made up this trellis or rule of life. So their calendar and their structures of spirituality were organized around four things, prayer, rest, relationships, and work. And I just, this is so fascinating to me because imagine if you organize your schedule as, as God is in the center, that you're organizing your life around time and God in prayer, um, rest, work and relationships. And so if you were to look at the four categories for your own personal life, where's your prayer time? Where's your rest time? Where's your work time? And where are your relationships? And how does God fit into those things? I think it's really helpful. For more information, you can get um, kind of some structure in this, in the book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Leader or Emotionally Healthy Church. But I want to encourage you to look at those categories. Where, what does your life of prayer look like, your rest and your work and your relationships? Um, and out of that structure will flow everything you do. Lastly, 
um, as a spiritual discipline to begin the process of slowing down for loving union, every week you should practice Sabbath. We've talked about this so much at this church, and you can find previous podcasts, but a Sabbath is a day a week that you don't do anything. You rest, you play, you worship and pray, you read the scriptures, you enjoy family and relationships, but it's an unhurried, unproductive day as a way of combating the productivity that we're engaged in the six days throughout the week. So um, those are the four kind of practices you can do. Find your desert, slow down your overall pace of life, establish a rule of life, and practice Sabbath. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.